The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. All right, thank you for joining again on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today I'm here with my guest, Thomas West. Thomas, are you ready to share with some quality people? I am totally pumped up. So excited to be having this conversation. and. In prep, I took my jacket off and I'm in a t-shirt now because I have a feeling a lot of hard questions are going to come my way and the pressure cooker is going to be put on me. All right. Well, I hope so. I'm not doing my job if I don't put the pressure on just a little bit, man. So no, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for joining, Um, Tom. And we love to start every show with getting our positive affirmations going to build that momentum. So I love if you could share a favorite leadership quote or leadership mindset, but tell us why it's important to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? Yeah, thank you for that. Oh, there's so many to to choose from. And I'm a huge Deming fan. I think he uh, really just kind of put leadership uh, or brought perspectives of leadership into the workplace that a lot of people really didn't have at the time. And uh, he kind of painted the picture that leader's role is really about empowerment and giving people the tools they need to enact change. So I loved his quote about, you know, every process or every system is perfectly designed to get the results that it's currently getting. And, you know, I think that gets to let's, let's work smarter and not harder. Let's study our processes and prove those. And if we can get high reliability in our processes, our people, you know, their results are going to be much better and Mm -hmm. they're going to enjoy their work and, and things like that. So just a very powerful quote. The other part of that is, you know, a bad process will be a good person every time. So another quote from Deming, all talking about, Hey, like, let's wage war on bad process because it's really those things that are the bottlenecks that are slowing organizations down and people down from doing really good work. No, so uh, trust me, Tom, anytime a guest comes on and start quoting Deming, you are already in a special place with me. Um, and, and both of those are two of, you know, my favorite, you know, popular Deming quotes, especially that second one right now in the world of healthcare and covid you know, and to see, you know, unfortunately, so many quality professionals have been furloughed or laid off over the past few months. And I'm just like, no, wait, those are the folks you need to keep. I mean, everybody's important. And those folks are the folks who can be, you know, your unsung heroes. So, um, so yeah, it's been tough to watch, but those are two of my favorite quotes as well. Yeah, I'm glad that I've met another improvement nerd who (laughs) was uh, right, right up there and saying the same things like, hey, we cannot stop working on processes right now. I understand the firefighting mentality in you healthcare professionals and you, I, I call healthcare professional caregivers, anyone who works in healthcare. So caregivers, they're under a lot of pressure right now. But, you know, some of those processes and, and some of those 
patient types that needed help and needed resources before COVID-19. Um, what We're fooling ourselves if we think magically those things are going to solve themselves in a crisis. We, we have to have, find a way to balance uh, managing this crisis and learning and innovating through it, but also improving in the areas where it was needed prior to the crisis. Right now, I don't see much balance. I see a lot of firefighting and uh, I'm afraid in some ways we're falling a little bit behind. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And I hope that just what we're saying right now motivates people to kind of advocate to get things back on track and invest in improvement. There you go, man. Could not have said that better. Um, so let, let's get into it with you, Thomas. Uh, Tom Thomas, I, I probably keep going back and forth. Um, but, you know, I, I, you know, identified you or had the chance to connect with you some time ago. So I've um, been vying to get your brain all over my particular show and would love to even give you a shout out to your podcast as well. Um, but Tom, man, I would love if you can just introduce yourself, share with our quality people, um, something about you, your current role and the work that you're leading, professional background, and absolutely what even led you into this path, career path. Yeah, it's I, I'm so glad to be here with you today. You and I had coordinated, um, I don't know if you remember, a recording probably a year ago or so. I had just ventured out on my own mm -hmm. and was working through becoming an independent consultant. And there's a lot of uncertainty around doing work like that. And when, yeah, when I left the comfort of working in a hospital where I knew a lot of people and I knew the expectations of my work, uh, I had done that for almost nine years and an opportunity came up to kind of venture out and to serve as a freelancer and to start my own business. And the opportunity was so great. I said yes to it, although I really wasn't looking to do it. And just that, that quick change caused a lot of anxiety for me. And, and I ended up having to cancel our episode because I was working on myself and really working on mindfulness and parts of my life that I really hadn't focused on. Um, so, you know, thank you for allowing me that, that time to really get in the right headspace to be an effective guest. And I'm so glad, you know, I'm here to say like that work paid off. I, there's more uncertainty now with COVID-19 than when I first started my own business. And right now I could tell you I'm happier um, making less and not knowing what's coming tomorrow than I was when I was working in healthcare and I knew day-to-day um, -day what every expectation was. I've just experienced so much growth being a small business owner and going out and advocating for the things I believe in and trying to convince people that um, I'm a, a reliable partner and a person that they should trust to help lead them in their transformations. So uh, a year later now, I'm uh, the, the founder, co-founder of the Green Dot Consulting Group, which is a small uh, consulting firm that focuses in on business transformation. I'm sure there's a lot that fits under that umbrella, but a couple of things I really focus in on is culture and helping to teach the individuals within the organization the skills they need to problem solve and also create that psychological safety for people to speak up and to share their ideas. Oftentimes when organizations bring consultants in, the consultant, a good consultant really just helps the people find the answer that was already there. Um, so a lot of what I do is culture building and trust building between the frontline caregivers and the administrative teams so that they can have dialogue about what are our goals and what's preventing us from getting there and how we're gonna get there. So big piece of what I do is trust building. I do Baldridge, 
a great framework for helping organizations go from being good to better to the best that they can be. And then design thinking is another um, centerpiece that I've kind of built my business. You know, there's a lot of people in this space and they all specialize in different areas. Uh, and those are the three that I have a lot of fun with. And then the one thing that's really created a lot of demand for me is because I have a degree in finance. So I think a lot of people are shocked, like you have a degree in, in finance. I love numbers. I love data. Um, and because of that, I've been able to create value scorecards for organizations to help them realize the value of projects that maybe aren't direct cost. Um, but, you know, efficiency savings, creating strong brand reputation for employers. We all know nurses and uh, especially data analysts right now are really hard to recruit in healthcare. So what is, how do you put money or value to what's your brand reputation to those prospective employees? So that's another thing that I've become known for is helping organizations implement a value scorecard and come up with financial models to assess and assign value to work that's kind of hard to quantify. No, perfect. I appreciate that overview. And I'll say, Tom, just right out the gate, I think I don't know if I even checked to see, but back when we first connected, I think I automatically assumed you were an engineer because <laughs> our backgrounds were so very similar. I mean, all the way from the work that you were doing with Lean and Six Sigma, the certifications, um, even your focus around Baldridge. Um, I took this year off of Baldridge because of the pandemic, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I remember seeing a lot of that in your bio um, through LinkedIn. I would not have guessed it was finance background, but the the similarities are still there between engineering and you know financial analytics. Um, so I love the background, and I want to give you props too, man. I, I think somewhere in that crazy mind of yours is a huge marketing piece because. You know, your company, Green Dot Consulting, when I saw that, I was like, oh, I love it. You know, you got to be a facilitator to understand what the green dots are, right? Um, And then even the improvement nerd for your podcast. I was like, damn it, that is a good name. I love it. So um, would love if you just give a quick shout out maybe to your uh, podcast, but I just have to let you know, I love the naming, you know, things you're coming up with. It's just, it it strikes me and I was geeking out about it. So congrats. You know, that huge smile on my face. Um, thank you for that feedback. I, I had to embrace a lot of that. Um, you know, the, the nerdiness that exists in our small community of improvement minded people and to celebrate it and just call it what it was like, everyone has that one thing that gets them going, right. Whether it's a a sports team, like I'll, I'll hang out with people in my neighborhood and they'll know the scores and what's happening on the weekend in regards to football or in the playoffs for baseball and like all this information going around their head. And I'm always impressed. I'm like, how do you have the bandwidth to know that much about sports? I envy you because I want, I wish I could do that too, but you know, so I don't, I, I didn't nerd out about sports and I, those people, they, there are a community of people who nerd out about sports. There's communities of people who nerd out about a variety of different topics. And I wanted to find my circle of friends and who are people who nerded out about making things better and problem solving and innovating. And I started to just kind of play with the word improvement nerds and, you know, first called myself that and would introduce myself as that and just kind of see how people reacted. And I think over time, like people, they let their nerds come out too and celebrate it. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I love meeting improvement nerds. You're one of them. No, well, thank you. I, I will take that um, just to join the community because uh, like I said, when I saw it, 
I geeked out about it. You know, for this podcast, I call our audience quality people, and it was just an easy play. Um, but yeah, improvement nerds, man, you hit you hit a tone with me personally on that. So, um, you know, Tom, thank you so much for just introducing us to everything. And we can definitely have some conversation too, maybe offline, about the entrepreneurship game because um, yeah, I'm I'm personally right there in the mix. I'm like eight toes in and ready to kind of take the full the full bounce over. But um, thank you again, just for that background. Uh, I want to move us to the next question because Tom, the big thing when you reached out to reconnect, um, it was to strike up a conversation about design thinking, which I thought was awesome because we have not talked about design thinking on any of my past episodes. And, you know, with the expertise that you're building, man, I want to give you the opportunity to introduce the topic or to, you know, kind of deepen the topic for any of our listeners that may be already familiar with it. But uh, Tom, you know, what are three, well, let me, let me back up, you know, first, if you could give us kind of the, the quick overview and introduction into design thinking for those not familiar with it, but then we'd love for you to touch on three key topics that quality professionals, healthcare leaders should know and understand and appreciate about design thinking. Oh, thank you. I, when I had done my study and, and I was reading through your questions, I'm like, okay, three critical concepts. I tried to do it like a building block scenario of um, things I thought people needed to learn in order to create the space for design thinking. So one of the key concepts is design that I want to talk about, but I think some stepping stones to get you and your organization to have the bandwidth to practice empathy and apply it to problem solving is to figure out how to facilitate and do improvement activities in a virtual world. You know, you can't, we can't, because we, we're not together face-to-face, -face, we cannot stop mapping our processes and dialoguing with each other about what's not working and how we can gain efficiencies or better serve our customers. So we have to find a way as improvement professionals to continue to drive that dialogue and that type of improvement activity through virtual platforms. There's a lot of cool tools that are out there. Um, one of the ones I'm trying to think that I recently used, oh, it's a, I'll, we all have to, maybe put it in the show notes, but there's a lot that are out there um, that allow you to kind of collaborate through a different, you know, portal. It's no longer Zoom and just video, but it's interactive interfaces where you can do your pick chart, you can do a swim lane or a process map, and everyone can kind of come in and, you know, do their own post-it notes. And then it's close to real time. There's a little bit of lag, but say you got a team of 10 people, and on this platform, you know, you want people to be able to brainstorm and share their ideas. That's such a powerful part of improvement is everyone individually thinking and contributing and then combining all that individual genius into a collective genius and say like, you know, look at, look at the ideas we have, look at the amount of consensus that exists. We all agree we can do better. Let's embark on this journey. So I think we've got to figure out how to do that in the virtual world. And then, you know, as we do that type of improvement, we need to start thinking about, okay, what's the best use of the human capacity, right? Um, there's things that computers can do that we can do that we should really just entrust them to do. And then there's things they can't do that we can. And the, I think the highest level of a person's ability is to be empathetic and to relate and to have intuition and instincts. And I think we got to carve out space through process improvement to give us the room to do those things more often instead of, you know, manual processing or data entry or things that could be automated. So I think 
as we do improvement, we should be looking at RPA robotic process automation to take the workflows and to bring the element of technology into it to do some of the work that's pretty manual or not really maximizing a person's ability and hand that over and, and use robotic process automation. And the more we do that now, we've got capacity in our processes and our everyday roles to be more present and in that presence can practice empathy. So I think we have to, you know, create a little bit of bandwidth. I think a lot of organizations tell you they don't have enough bandwidth or can't stop what we're doing right now to improve. Well, we got to find that wiggle room because being empathetic and, and um, adopting the design process, it's not a shortcut. It's, you don't, it's not a blitz either. It, you know, it's, it's wandering, it's, it's natural curiosity, it's connection, and those things take time. So, so teach me this, because I, I am familiar with design thinking, but I've never personally, you know, applied it or led um, a design thinking initiative in any form. Mm. Um, for your typical, you know, just your average type of design thinking project, mm -hmm. um, could you des uh, describe for us first kind of the phases of a design thinking project, but then about how long are we talking to your point about creating the wiggle room and giving teams a chance to go through that process to apply to empathy and the innovation, you know, ideas they may want to go through. What does that look like and about how long does it take? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So the crash course around design, there's a lot of great resources out there. IDEO, they're a, definitely an authority figure in the Stanford D schools, an authority figure on the design thinking process. And there's a lot of other thought leaders that are out there. Uh, one of the books I love, keep it close to me just in case people ask about it. One, it's, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful book. So it's uh, a book called Sprint, Solving Big Problems and testing your ideas in just five days. And it's by Jake Knapp and there's other contributors to this, but these individuals are doing a lot of innovation in the Google uh, environment right now. So I read this book and um, read it many times and I love it, it's, it's a great resource. So the, if you wanna learn more about design, don't just take what I'm saying, go out and be curious and become a student of it. So now that I've said that, I'll try to give you what I think design is and why I love it so much. So uh, having facilitated DMAIC for, gosh, seven years of my career in healthcare, I started to think that the teams um, were shy or hesitant to take risk, um, even though the ideas were there, or at least uh, we were in, in the right direction to do healthcare differently. But the, the energy or the attitude to take those risks and to do those innovative things just people wouldn't prioritize them and they would go for things that are more conservative, I guess, and the improvements that they wanted to bring forward. So, I, you know, I think if healthcare is to improve by leap and bounds, taking innovative risk and really turning healthcare on its head and redesigning it is absolutely necessary. And I just wasn't seeing people in a, a Kaizen or through Demaic innovate you know, they, they were improving and yes, it's a very good method and it gets a lot of organizations great results, but we had a strong foundation of results. You know, we had improved our quality. We'd, you know, improved our supply chain. We've reduced our cost. At that point, our team had helped the organization harvest about $80 million of cost savings across the enterprise. So we demonstrated that DMAIC worked and that it was valuable. 
but now we were moving into the space where we needed to differentiate ourselves from our competitors. I'm in Indianapolis and in our market, there's four big hospital healthcare players and there's two uh, disruptors that are coming in that are um, doing freestanding emergency rooms at the time and employer clinic um, direct to employer products. And they were coming in and they were really putting pressure on us to think differently. So I had to change the approach of how I was leading my teams and the design process really created a different energy and a team atmosphere where the ideas they came up with, more of them were forward thinking and cutting edge. And uh, they were the individuals on the team actually were invested in them and were willing to take those risks because the journey we walked really helped them understand why those ideas were important and who those ideas were serving. So as you kind of almost like a Kaizen uh, sprint, you know, you bring a team together for a fixed duration. Most times it's five days. And on day one, you know, you're just like in Demaic, you're defining the problem and you do that in design thinking too. But on day one, you're defining the problem through the eyes of the customer. And you're relying a lot on qualitative data and storytelling. So, you know, the first part of the, the event, you're telling everyone in the group what you're going to be doing to them and you're orienting them to the design process. And there's a lot of skepticism in the room. Like, how is this going to work? How is going out and talking to people, customers and listening and getting them to tell stories or going to other organizations, maybe comparative organizations and getting their employees or their customers to tell stories. How is that gonna help us, you know, lay a strong foundation to build ideas upon? Well, day one is all about that deep dive and, and gathering empathy. And although there's a lot of skepticism before people go out and do those deep dive interviews, when they come back from those interviews, the energy, it's like a switch that everyone is pumped up because now they understand the problem in a completely different light. I think everyone at the start of day one, they had their own bias of what the problem was. They didn't have their own bias on what the ideas or improvements should be. And you that's good. You want them to kind of stumble over themselves and realize that what they had made up in their head and what reality was, was is really different. And on day one, it's that 180 turn from holy holy smokes, had we done those things, had we acted on those ideas, or had we defined the problem through our perspective instead of our customers, we would have really missed the mark. So then you take that energy uh, and that customer-centered focus, patient-centered focus in healthcare, and you build upon that throughout the, the next day through to the end. So day two of your sprint approach is going out and it's, it's now unpacking the interviews that you've done and using a tool called an empathy map. So it's looking at the conversation and on this empathy map, there's direct quotes. What did they say? And actions, what did they do? So that's the left side of your, your four quadrants is what were the, what did they say? What did they do? And then on the right side of the quadrant, that center line is called the line of inference. What were they feeling and what were they thinking? And that really gets to what motivates people and what are their emotions involved as they interact with us or our environment, and you can put yourself in the shoes of your customer at that point. And these empathy maps, you know, most times you go out, you do about 20 deep dive interviews, 20 to 24, and uh, those tend to translate into about five or six unique motivators um, or perspectives of customer storylines. And then from those, then you convert those stories into personas. 
And so you go from this empathy map of really understanding your customers stated and unstated needs to, okay, how do we retell that patient story to everyone? Because we're just a design team. There's 10 of us in a room and we got to somehow take what we heard that patient say out to the organization so everyone can hear it too and connect to it. So the empathy map is for the design team. The persona is for the organization. And then based on your personas, which is the deliverable at the end of day two, and sometimes they need the start of day three to kind of really fine tune their personas. So these are now your core customers. These personas define your customer requirements. They, they help you draft what's called how might we statements. So how might we is, you know, here's the user, here's their needs, and this is what they need because. So you, every persona has a user needs because statement. And then those user needs lead you to, well, how might we do these things on that person's behalf? And that collection of how might we is really your foundation for uh, brainstorming and coming up with your ideas for improvement. And so maybe a, an example would be a hand washing, for example. We know hand washing, especially during COVID-19, everyone's talking about it. And, it, and we know it's important to do, um, but in the healthcare space caregivers, there's so much going on around them that oftentimes they forget. So we wanted to study uh, hand washing and come up with ways to improve compliance with hand washing within healthcare. And, you know, there's flyers, there's marketing, there's re-education, there's a lot of things that exist, but none of them are really working because it's that that caregiver needs a prompt and um, a cue to hand wash. And a lot of people don't talk about it with each other. These care teams, you know, there's oftentimes they'll observe someone not washing their hands and there's no accountability there that one caregiver won't mention to another one, hey, or they don't have the language to mention to another one, hey, you forgot to do this. So we did this design sprint and they, the design team went into healthcare and they talked to caregivers, but they also went into daycares. They went into manufacturing and they went into food prep industry and they applied empathy to kind of understand what motivates people to wash their hands in all these different environments. And then based on that, they were able to come forward with some ideas for improvement. And one of the things they came up with was a game called Catch Me If You Can. And it was a set of rules and a set of words that would allow the care team to talk to each other about hand washing in front of the patient, in front of regulators without you know getting your hand slapped. So they would, it was a point system and, you know, if they observed someone not washing their hands, that was actually, you would get the most points. You would get five points for doing that. And the language would be, you know, that, hey, I observed it. You would say five points would be the things you'd say. And that caregiver would know, oh, I just got five points because I didn't wash my hands. So we rewarded not washing your hands and gave them a language to play this game as a team to actually improve dialogue about washing hands. So very different than any um, improvement idea I've ever seen brought forward and improve hand washing. They it was based on empathy. It was based on game theory. Um, it was based on people caring for kids and using funny words with kids to help explain complex things. And it all came together in this game. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. And then based on your idea, just like in Demaic, you go out and you implement it and you do a small test to change and you interpret the results and you try to um, prototype it and repeat, prototype, repeat. Um, but 
in design thinking, you do that with, with your customer kind of side by side. So it's co-creation. So that's a, a really long elevator speech. I know most elevator speech is supposed to be done in 90 seconds. <laughs> just, I just got going and I felt it and I kept going. So thanks for letting me yeah. <laughs> vomit no. on buddy. <laughs> no, no, well, it, it was good, especially, you know, for me, like I said, I'm, I'm familiar with it. And I remember even when I first started learning about design thinking, because I, I still feel personally, to me, at least, I feel like it's still fairly new. It is. Uh, and I remember when I first heard about it, and the, the person who was telling me about it, it was the, a team member um, who worked over at Kaiser when I worked there. And she was over design thinking and a whole innovation team. So they were doing some really, really impressive stuff, even at that time, just a couple of years ago. And when she described it to me, I remember kind of sitting back, I was like, this is just a spinoff of Demaic. And really where I was going, I was like, I think it's Demavi. That's where, you know, as she described it, I was like, this is Demavi. Yeah. But one of the key things that differentiates it, and you said it a number of times as you described it there, is that focus around the empathy model and bringing the customer or the patient into the process, which ideally we do on any Demavi or Demaic project, but we don't always, mm -hmm. right? And even Lean says, you know, value is what the customer defines. And yet we still find ourselves doing projects a lot of times without the customer being in the facilitated session with us. So yes. that's definitely, you know, the um, the mark of distinguish that she put on it. She was like, nope, we literally bring the customer, you know, the customers, our patients in. We will teach them the way we teach our teams. We will get them involved. We will let them be with us through step for step for step for the entire project. And I, I thought that was key. Um, and, it, you know, even me who facilitated so many things, I think I would be nervous as heck to have the customer at the table, a part of the team for the entire time. You know, I, I've brought patients in to kind of tell their story and then kind of let them go while we problem solve without them. Um, I've done that plenty. Mm -hmm. But to literally have them a part of it, I thought that was such a very, very unique way to tackle innovation, to tackle problem solving. And even your example there, the catch me if you can example, that sounds like a very fun, innovative, but still effective way to problem solve. So, so yeah, no, I appreciate just that entire, um, just, you know, overview because yeah. like I said, even for me kind of hearing it again, I was like, yep, that's it. And I've read Sprint maybe three, four or five years ago, more or less. And now I'm thinking I need to go, I need to go and read it again, because even when I read that, I was like, this is just a spinoff of a Kaizen, huh. you know, and, but, you know, to your point now, I'm like, oh man, I clearly was missing some of the points in there. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, doing your empathy map is voice of the customer, right? But yeah. in Mayak, voice of the customer is oftentimes leaning towards uh, like a survey, yeah. record scale, it's very quantitative. And in design thinking, it's more qualitative. It's what is the motivating factors of this patient's story? What is their experience? What are they feeling? What are the emotions happening in this exchange? And it's connecting to those things, not, not only, you know, using your heart, you know, it's definitely bringing that into the, what it's mostly doing is bringing that into the picture. Yes. We're still improving based on data. Like we knew there was a problem because our data said so, and we're still using that data, but that data is now coupled with, um, you know, qualitative data. So it's now improving through the head and the heart. And I do talking about the catch me if you can, it's got an asterisk on it. So the team came up with that idea and, you know, 
talking about co-designing with customers and rapid prototyping and trying things, we were able to convince the team to do that. We were not able to convince her, convince the sponsor and the business owners to let us try it. So, you know, it's going to lead you to better and more innovative ideas and uh, different energy on your teams. And the biggest lesson learned for us in that was we didn't have the decision makers or the controllers of the resources or the project sponsors in the sprint. So they didn't understand that energy. And when we reported it out to them and we were proposing this drastic idea that we all loved, they, because they didn't walk on the journey with us, they didn't prioritize it. So, you know, my lesson learned in that was we got to find a way to teach design to leaders so that they understand um, this process and, and know how to support it in a different way. So that was the asterisk that we learned our lesson in the future design sprints. We got a lot more yeses to try a lot crazier ideas further down the road. And that, that's interesting because, you know, obviously for healthcare, at least by nature, it's a very conservative industry. So a lot of big time innovation, I could, I could see that scaring leaders if they're not on the front end with you. Um, so perfect. Tom, I appreciate that entire overview. Um, I'm going to move us ahead just a little bit because I feel like I could keep talking about this for, um, for the entire time I got you booked here. Um, Tom, the next question that I have for you, and uh, let me know, am I, am I coming in clear? Can you, are you with me? I can hear you, um, but I think maybe you just froze. Give me. All right. Yeah, on, on my side, your screen is freezing as well, so I just want to make sure you're still there. I'm still with you. All right. I'll keep going. Uh, let me know if we if we break up or anything, but uh, just checking my internet, make sure I got a strong connection here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Tom, uh, the next question I have for you is: I would love if you could share. Um, you know, maybe I don't know if it'd be the same story or not, but since that was so good, but uh, a big professional success and even a big professional failure connected with any of the work that you've done behind design thinking, or, you know, feel free to even take the uh, chance to go past design thinking with, you know, again, your, your very diverse expertise, but uh, any big failures or successes that you can share with the audience? Yeah. Um, I, Cause I, as I recapped that one, the, the hand washing design sprint, um, it was a lot of fun. And I, I think the failure um, so, you know, we, we see failure has your first attempt in learning, right? I, I love that acronym, fail, first attempt in learning. So our lesson learned there was the inclusion of sponsors in some parts of the design sprint, at least having them come in for periodic report outs so that at the end, they're not getting fire hosed to the face of here's everything we did and here's the personas. It could be very overwhelming for someone to, to digest in a one hour report out. So we adjusted how we were doing our, our sprints to come to bring our sponsors in more periodically or to be on the team throughout to kind of get these small bite-sized report outs of we, here's where we went out and interviewed and here's some of the things we heard. Here's what motivates our patients and now the things that we're able to connect to. Here's the personas. Here's the things we believe is important to our customers in the form of how might we statement. So it's smaller bite-sized report outs instead of one big fire hose to the face report out. So I think that was a, a, an important learning for me in using design thinking. Um, one of the biggest successes 
or the the one that is most memorable for me in design thinking was when we did a social work study for oncology patients based on resources that they might need. And we went and we talked to families and patients about their resource needs while they were receiving care and tried to understand what we can advise to social workers or social work was part of the team um, to, to gain expertise in and to add to their resource bag of tricks to help patients out in these hard times. And there was obvious ones of transportation and access to food, uh, you know, financial things. So the social work group, the care coordinators were already doing those, all those activities and they were really looking for ways to better serve this group. And we met um, two people I'll tell you about, and I'll try not to cry because this, it gets to your emotions. I'm already getting goosebumps, getting ready to talk about these people. So the first one we met was Rosie and Rosie and her husband came to the States, uh, didn't speak our language, didn't know what they were going to do for work, didn't know how they were going to provide for their family. And they just kind of figured it out. And that mindset is how uh, Rosie lived her whole life. She was extremely resourceful. She would always figure it out. And that's a good thing, right? Sometimes when it comes to self-care, there are things that exist that are being marketed to patients as the next best cure. And if we as caregivers don't realize that someone who's extremely resourceful is foregoing medical advice to take the advice of a book or a commercial in place of medicine, that's a potential problem. And Rosie had a binder of stuff. She carried it with her everywhere and she showed it to us while we interviewed her and the level of credibility and all the resources she acquired was, was concerning. There were some things in there that would actually do harm to Rosie. Um, and we needed to know that the care team, the resource coordinators, they needed to know that so that they can help advise her and direct her in a way to the resources she was gathering were actually going to help her be successful. And Rosie, what, why I'm so emotional about her, because you could take oncology and a patient facing cancer and you can change that disease state to be almost any disease state. So my grandmother, very similar to Rosie, and I felt immediately connected to her. And what happened, unfortunately, my grandmother is now passed, but what's happening is we as the family knew she was going down a path and gathering resources that weren't going to help her be successful in, care, in caring for herself and her heart disease. She was taking vitamins and she was spending a lot of money on essential oils and all these things and not taking her statins. And we knew it was just a matter of time before something catastrophic would happen. And, you know, the care team, they weren't aware of this and we were, and she was not trusting us and the care team didn't know it. So there's this big blind spot. And two years later, my grandmother had a stroke and never successfully recovered and passed away in the hospital. And how many times do um, care teams fail to see past the face-to-face -face visit and into that person's life? And had they seen those things, they could have done so much better by that person. So I'm still with you. So that one was definitely a powerful persona the coordinators realized that they had to do better to monitor the resources that these patients were gathering because they could be 
potentially doing harm to themselves. The next one I, I know I'll cry on, <laughs> fair warning. And that's the thing about design thinking is probably of 90% of the sprints I've led, someone on the team has cried or expressed emotion or joy. This is really joy for me because I see the, the great potential of what design thinking can do for healthcare and the, the, um, the opportunity that exists when you bring empathy back to the care environment. Because I think so many nurses, they've surrounded themselves with really thick walls because it's hard, hard work. And we got to find ways to let them feel things again, because then they're really caring. They're not just performing care processes. They're authentically caring about the person in front of them. And that's really hard when we're asking them to do so many things. So I th design thinking is important to me for that aspect alone is we're going to let people feel again and, and let them be human in that regard. And this is a human story that's kind of hard to tell. The persona was Joel. Uh, and um, when we talked to him, he was a small business owner. Him and his wife were both very entrepreneurial and they had young kids. And when he was struck with this disease, um, you know, he knew the outlook was, was pretty grim and it was going to take hard, hard work for him to fight it. And, uh, and the family was going to have to fight it alongside him. So, you know, he dove into it and, um, you know, definitely was a good patient. And we asked him, what resources do you need? And he said, you know what, this is a lot of stress on my family and especially my wife and I's relationship. And, and he said, I don't know if I want to beat this disease, if it's going to cost me my wife. And so we took away from that and we went to our care coordinators and I said, how are you going about advising patients to have these difficult conversations with their loved ones and their family um, when everything's falling apart? That, so at that point we realized the patient wasn't just that person. It was, it was Joel's kids. It was Joel's wife. And the, the resource coordinators needed to find a way to connect to those people too. And um, after I met that persona, the person who I had done the sprint with my, my partner that we were doing the interviewing. So you buddy up, you have a, a lead interviewer and a scribe. When we walked away from that and on the drive home, she said, I can completely relate to that, that person's story because after I beat cancer, my husband and I had a divorce and we, it happens all the time and it's through design you know those were the most proud moments was we were able to bring a human element back into the care environment to see those people as people and to realize um the the amount of care we needed to provide to them to keep them safe but also the amount of care that we needed to provide beyond them to connect them to their families and there, there's a lot of things that are being asked of healthcare. And we're never going to be able to satisfy it all if we don't allow ourselves to practice empathy and to really care about those. And thank you for letting me say those things. I, I'm going to pride myself and toot my own horn here. I, I normally lose it a lot more and can't, takes me a lot longer to get through those stories, but I feel like I'm getting better at telling them and now I'm sweating. Oh, well, you know, Tom, first, first and foremost, man, I appreciate just that vulnerability because you know, I'll share with you, that question is the fan favorite on this entire podcast. It's really getting that that deep down reflection from all the guests that, you know, that I've had on here. So um, I appreciate that. And, you know, as you shared the story there, I, I finally kind of had 
you know, my green light, my green light, I'm looking at your green dot logo, uh, my, my light bulb moment, which was how you started the show, right? With the uh, dimming quote, every process is designed to get the results that it gets. You just shared some phenomenal stories about the processes that we fight on a daily basis as healthcare leaders, healthcare professionals, and the outcomes for you know those patients or just that empathetic approach to understand what they're thinking. And that's the power that I can realize now in the design thinking approach. When you're coming in with an empathetic ear to assess and analyze your processes, not the data, not the process analysis and value stream maps, all the you know, scientific quantitative things we do, but the empathetic approach to it, it allows you to go back to that Deming quote, like the process is designed to do exactly what you designed it to do. But if it's not taking the empathetic approach, then we still miss the buck. So that was, you know, that was my reflection on your entire stories, you know, the, the stories you just shared there. And again, just connecting the dot, you know, the light bulb with, okay, now I get it design thinking, listening to the patients, the qualitative, the internal feelings that they're really having, and then designing processes still with process focus, data focus, but with that empathetic focus added in, and you should get a better outcome for the, the collective, the emotional part and the process efficiencies. Am I kind of heading in the right direction now that hopefully I'm getting smarter as you're teaching me, man? Yeah, I think you said it really well is, you know, we see care has following processes and delivering therapies and the processes are technically driven. And yes, they're very scientific and they're evidence-based, but beyond their, these processes, we can care for the patients in different ways, specifically their spiritual and emotional well-being. And I had a mentor, his name's Mark Hytoff. He's an amazing person and he's older than I am. So he was consuming healthcare and I wasn't other than when we welcomed our twins, but he had a scare. Um, he thought he was having a heart attack. So we went in and they did, you know, the, the diagnostics. And at one point, you know, uh, the nurse sensed that he was claustrophobic and a little bit afraid. And, you know, as they were um, injecting the, the contrast into his arm and preparing to slide him under the imaging device, the nurse grabbed his hand and he said, Nowhere in the process map does it say to do that. And that's where we need to create space for our caregivers to be present to do things just like that. Because yeah, like the therapy is rock solid. It was evidence-based to do all those things to him, to diagnose him, to make sure that, you know, he wasn't experiencing a major event, but going through all those therapies is really scary stuff. And we can't forget that in healthcare, no one wants to be there most times other when they're having children or, or a major happy event like that. Yeah. So, you know, we need to create space in our processes for the nurses to um, be present in order to care for that person's emotional well-being. And Mark's story was a great example. They were doing everything right, but what made the difference for him on that day was that the nurse held his hand when he was scared. Wonderful. No, I appreciate that. And uh, Tom, I'm going to move us to the next question, because, uh, again, I, I feel like I could probably sit here and just nerd out and talk everything that we're talking about for forever. Um, folks on the our listeners are going to get mad at us <laughs> for tying them up. <laughs> um, 
Tom, the next question, just trying to pick up on my list here. Um, would love, Tom, if you could share a go-to tool, technique, or resource connected with design thinking um, that our uh, listeners can also learn about and plug into. Yeah. The, oh, man. Get on Google and just search Google images for customer journey maps or patient journey maps. They're just like a um, in what we're used to seeing in, the, in regards to a flow chart, but it's more the touch points. It's what the patient, patient family are interacting with um, on stage and behind the scenes of their healthcare experience. And it's across the whole continuum. It's not, you know, how did they just, you know, register or how did they be billed or invoiced? It's that entire continuum from access to discharge and bill. And looking at all the activities that happen in, the, in that person's journey. And it, you know, we're used to, I call the company the green dot because green dot indicates a value added activity. So we're used to analyzing our processes and looking for waste. And if it's something the customer wouldn't value it, we'd say, hey, that's red. Or if it's regulated and we have to do it, we'd say, hey, that's a blue dot. That's business value added activity. And we've got our green dot steps, which are, um, you know, value added activities. Well, on an experience map, there's pain points and there's moments of truth. And what we're monitoring across the patient's journey is that person's experience. So right underneath the map, you'll see all these touch points. And then you're going to see what looks like a heartbeat scale. And it's kind of measuring um, the attitude or anxiety or the energy that's happening in that exchange. So you'll see you know, a patient go from you know, a four or a five in which their experience is relatively positive at a certain part of the journey to bottoming out at another part of the journey to coming back up. And we just get to really understand the emotional uh, toll that experiencing healthcare has on a person across all of these different touch points. So the empathy or the, the, that map, the patient journey map is a great visual way to kind of talk to someone's analytical mind and show them the process, but also the emotional mind to show them the experience. It's such an awesome tool. All right. Perfect. And I, again, Tom, man, you are, you are literally teaching me. I love, I love when the coach can get coached. So um, <laughs> I, I've heard of uh, patient journey maps, but again, never, um, never use them. So that was a great overview for me personally. Um, hopefully, again, that resonates with all of our quality people, all of the, um, you know, healthcare leaders that plug in with this show. And I appreciate that, that reintroduction. That's a tool that I've heard about and not used. And definitely the way you broke it down there, um, I will be checking that out again and seeing how I could pull it back into my game. So thank you for that. Um, Tom, is there an industry leader that has had a huge influence just on you or your career overall? And if so, uh, what was that impact? Um I would think probably the the biggest pivoting point in my career was when I started to become a Baldridge examiner and getting to go out and see these tremendous organizations as a volunteer and to, you know, I can't talk about who I'd assessed, you know, that's, um, you know, you got to keep that confidential. But some of these organizations, these Baldridge caliber organizations that I had the pleasure of getting to know through the Baldridge experience really opened my eyes to how good organizations can be and the profound impact they can not only have on their customers, 
but the profound impact and the purpose they can give to their employees. And if you do those two things right, knowing that your customer has other roles and responsibilities in their life, and so does your employee, right? They're only interacting with you for a certain part, of, a portion of their life. And there's so many other things in their life that are equally important, probably more important. And if you can do good by them, give them great products, service, or something that helps them achieve a goal that they have in their life if they're your customer, or if you can give them purpose if you're an employee, that's going to create positive energy for those individuals. And they're going to take that energy and it's going to spill over into other part of their life. And you're going to see families uh, benefit. You're going to see neighborhoods benefit and communities benefit. And I think being in, in a Baldridge organization, you see that they they get that big picture. And then after a couple of years of volunteering for Baldridge, I volunteered for communities of excellence. And I got to see Baldridge play out at the sale, the scale of a city or a town. And I think it's just really uplifting to see tremendous organizations leading the way in, in that fashion to say, let's not just have a successful business, but let's be a really good neighbor and let's contribute to the health and the well-being of the neighborhood or the community that we're serving. And, oh man. So, you know, I would say adopt design thinking for sure. I love it. And also find room to adopt a Baldridge mindset. It was just eye-opening to see organizations commit to excellence in that way. Well, and, you know, I'm really glad again that you're giving that shout out to, um, to the Baldridge program. Um, I haven't, I haven't gone deep on Baldridge. Um, I've had a chance to kind of highlight it a few times on this podcast, but you know, for me, Tom, when I first got involved, it was 2007, 2008, I got involved with the state program over in North Carolina where I was at the time. And then now over the last three years, even though, again, I, I took this year off specifically because of COVID, but, um, over the last three years, getting re-engaged at the national level. To this day, I, I tell everybody, and so I just want to say it for our listeners, Baldridge is without a doubt the best professional development program that I've ever been a part of. Um, everything that you just shared, you know, the ability to see what good looks like and literally quantify it, um, the chance to collaborate with some of the sharpest professionals across the, you know, many different industries. Um, you know, I, I can't say enough about what what that experience has been for me. And, you know, again, if any of our listeners have the chance to plug in with Baldridge or at least check out the conferences, um, just want to give that a huge shout out there. It's, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. I, I, in all the evaluations I've been able to be a part of, I've, I've often now that I have this knack for, and this like passion for design thinking, when I go and I evaluate and I see organizations tinkering with it and, you know, making small bets on it, side bets, not really pushing all the chips in. That's where I'm kind of seeing like, okay, the design thinking has been around for quite a while. It's quite popular in the tech business. And, you know, if you have an iPhone, basically you're, or if you eat Pringles, you're benefiting from the design process. Uh, healthcare and nonprofits, they've been pretty slow to adopt it. So, you know, through Baldridge, you get to see these world-class organizations and sometimes not even they know how to use it yet. So yeah. it, it just kind of gives you a, a temperature read of what improvement looks like 
in specific industries and in world-class organizations. And it just kind of gives you something to strive for. And I'm starting to see the role that design thinking will play in a lot of aspects that are measured through Baldrige, you know, leadership, um, you know, connecting to purpose or, um, you know, understanding your customers' needs, um, you know, empowering or encouraging your employees. There's just so many things that design thinking enables you to do that uh, is also encouraged by the Baldrige process. So I, I think these two, they're, they're very compatible. They're, they're friendly with each other. And I think you'll see some Baldrige winner sometime is going to hang their hat on design thinking as the thing that made the difference for them. All right. Perfect. And you know, the other part of Baldrige too, if anyone does take us up on the chance to explore it and definitely, you know, apply to become a, an examiner, um, it, I, the way I can describe it, because it is not easy, it will push, you know, your, your thinking to a different level. And I, I tell everybody it hurts so good. Like that is the only way I could describe it. Um, the amount of hours you're going to put into it, the reading, the debating with your team, but for some reason I keep signing back up. So <laughs> that's really well said. It hurts so good. It's, it's very true. All right. Um, Tom, next question I have for you, uh, could you share, uh, and again, I, I'm just opening this up for wherever you want to take it, but would you share your biggest customer success story and why do you think it was a success? So uh, the, I'll talk a little bit about my first project as an entrepreneur, the one that brought me out of my comfort zone. So while working for the system here in Indianapolis, we were growing through mergers and acquisitions and because of my background in finance, I found myself on these projects because oftentimes the integration or the hospital turnaround was being led by a CFO and no one else on the improvement team knew what a CFO was saying other than me because I'd gone to school to study finance and I knew all their acronyms and all their terms. So because I can translate it, they put me on these projects. And, you know, while I was on these projects, I quickly learned that these turnarounds had nothing to do with that hospital's financial performance what was core to the success of the turnaround was the level of trust between the senior leaders and the frontline caregivers and the ability to communicate with each other and learn together and adjust to become a better organization. They were just passing each other in the dark. You know, leaders had strategies that weren't being cross-checked with the frontline reality of what was going on in administering the care and the frustrations or the bottlenecks or the lack of resources that were being experienced at the front line weren't being escalated to the senior leaders to actually make decisions on and that both parties were just very frustrated and they were growing further and further apart from each other and that's what caused the organization to be faltering right was the division and, and all the things that pushed these two groups further and further apart. And in the turnaround, um, the, it was the CFO who actually said that this is what's gonna, what it's going to take for this turnaround to be successful is trust building. So, you know, I've learned a lot under that leader's name, uh, leader's um, approach. His name was Jeff Kirkham. He had been with the health system for 30 years and all of his daughters were born in, in, the, in the hospitals. And so he, he was a legacy guy and a lot of people looked up to him and he was very number savvy, but he never talked about numbers much while we were working with individuals because finance numbers and, and data oftentimes don't motivate people in healthcare. 
having conversations about what's going wrong, what can we do about it, where do we want to go, how are we going to get better, and having dialogue about that was really the what helped the organization turn the corner. And, you know, so it was a successful turnaround that the first hospital that we had facilitated was facing like a $14 million projected loss. And, and um, so we wanted to break even. And, you know, we were able to stabilize them and get them on, on stable ground. And actually, over the next five years, they actually became one of the profit leaders in the system because we invested in leadership and we invested in trust and we invested in problem solving on the front line and all that. So that turnaround was huge. And then, you know, so word got out there that I could do things like that. And when I wasn't looking, um, a system had come across my name. I had done a little bit of work for them doing design sprints and they liked me and I liked them. So they called me out of the blue. Actually, they called my mentor out of the blue. Jan Johnson, such an amazing person. Uh, if you look up Baldridge, you're probably going to come across her name because she does tremendous stuff for her clients and uh, she's well celebrated because of that. Um, so, you know, this client had a big problem. They um, were facing a very large financial deficit and they needed someone to come in and facilitate the turnaround. So I got the call um, on like, maybe a Tuesday or so. And I talked to my wife about it that night. And I said like, Hey, this is a great opportunity. Um, I'm not really looking, but I don't know who else can help this organization be successful. And my wife just said, you know, if not now, then when, and if not you, then who? So she really laid it on me and I said, yes. Um, so, um, really quick, like in a matter of two weeks, I went from working in a stable environment, doing work I knew to, <laughs> packing up to go to the four corners uh, part of the country in the Southwest to help facilitate another hospital turnaround. And this time I was on my own, like the CFO, the person that helped with the first turnaround and the second turnaround that we did at the health system here in Indianapolis, he was retired and I was out on there on, on my own. Um, but I relied very heavily on the things that he taught me is to focus on people and to focus on these conversations and to invest in trust and to teach people how to be better leaders and how to create a more thriving organization. And if you do those things, all the results are gonna follow. So, you know, I, I had told my wife, I think, hey, you know, we'll be out in the Southwest for two years because that's about how long it took to do the other two hospital turnarounds. And um, going out there and because we've led with that and because the leaders believed the same things I did and they wanted trust to exist between them and the front line, and invested so much in it to make it happen so quickly, they actually closed their gap in seven months. And now they're on very stable ground and they're uh, profitable. So I just, you know, what you think improvement is, or at least what the books say it is, um, yeah, it's about the tools and yeah, it's about a scorecard and tracking results and being data savvy, but don't forget that change is a personal decision. You have to connect with every single individual in the organization to get their commitment to go through this change with you. And if you do that, the results are going to wow you. Right. Perfect. Well, uh, again, I, I love that story. Um, and I, I love, you know, in, in the conversations I've had with folks, Tom, especially around, um, you know, building a a solopreneur small business that I'm going through. And it sounds like you had the, um, 
you know, the experience on your side, I tell everybody, you know, really when we're talking about going into business for yourself, it's about figuring out a problem for that potential client and then solving it. And literally, I keep it just that simple. Being in business is all problem solving. How you solve the problem, you know, can have its own level of savviness and sophistication. But at the end of the day, we're talking about problem solving. So um, so I personally appreciate hearing that story and the fact that, you know, the success you had in corporate pulled you, literally pulled you out into your entrepreneurial path. So that was pretty cool. Uh, um, you just have to learn to say yes when you really want to say no. And you got to... Yeah yourself with people who are a little bit braver than you are and borrow their courage to go and do something that's crazy. Cause I'll be honest, if I, if, if my wife didn't nudge me, if Jan Johnson didn't believe in me, if my mentor Travis, um, wasn't, you know, prodding me to, to do it either. Everyone I talked to were saying yes to. So it became easier for me to say yes and actually be excited about it. No, perfect. And uh, the last big question, and then we'll kind of move into, um, you know, the two-minute drill, which is kind of my take on a rapid-fire uh, Q&A format. But uh, last big question I have for you, Tom, uh, what do you see as the number one challenge and also the number one opportunity for healthcare quality improvement leaders? I think almost everything we've talked about has been, you know, trying to, to you know, elevate the importance of the human aspect of healthcare and relationships and making connections and practicing empathy, those things uh, are essential to transformation. So we know DMAIC works. We know the tools work. We, there's even change management and it's now entering into the body knowledge as, as a bigger part of what a black belt's expected to do. I say we have to go beyond those things and not just do change management. We have to become movement makers, right? We've got to tap into all this energy. We have to tap into people's passion and tap into their purpose. And if we could do those things, we're going to achieve tremendous breakthrough. I think I, in my episodes, um, I always repeat Margaret Mead's quote about never doubt that a group of highly motivated, passionate people can change the world because that's all that ever has. Um, or something like that. I may not have said it verbatim, but that's the truth is change is a personal decision. And if you can get everyone excited about it and help them connect with each other, it's going to be this tremendous momentum and all the changes we want to see happen in healthcare uh, that we believe are out of our reach are going to become just a little bit closer because we are bonded together. We're energized, we're excited, and we understand what it's, what's at stake because we studied our problem, not just through data, but through empathy, and we could see the bigger picture. And I think it's going to give us just that extra jolt we need to strive harder and to really create a healthcare system that we can be proud of. All right, perfect. I, I love I love the way you really summarize and really, I'll say, just kind of put it all back together there. So, um, so great job. And I just want to thank you before we jump into the two minute drill, just want to thank you again, because a lot of what you're sharing around the um, design thinking format and everything, you just have me thinking again, personally, on my end here, Tom, that I know I need to dig more into it. And um, I know, again, one of my questions is going to be around kind of the resources, ways to plug in. But I just want to just spotlight and say thank you for hitting me up, uh, re-engaging with me, but coming on and really kind of digging in around, um, 
you know, the design thinking. I know you kind of highlighted some additional resources at the beginning of our call, but over time, my friend, I, I really want to see you take the torch of being that that expert for design thinking so I could at least come and bug you every time I have questions, if nothing else. Um, you know, it's, it's, this is all about me, Tom. <laughs> know that, um, and that's the beautiful thing of what, what happens when two improvement nerds get together, right? It's like, <laughs> goal, like we have a purpose of this episode, we got a timeline to it, but when we get together, and we're talking about the things that fill our cup and, and fill our hearts, like time doesn't exist for us. I and we can right. think what we want to do with these things. So I'm so glad to see the energy that you have right now. I So when people ask what I do, like what what is improvement all about? Well, uh, to me, it's about empowerment, right? It's about mm-hmm. tapping into that person's greatest potential and giving them capabilities and like the superhuman strength to do things that they've always wanted to do and, and not, um, pushing them out in a way to where, you know, they're so stretched that they break, but they're, they're growing and, and they're trying new things and you're there with them. in the event that they, they falter a little bit to pick them up and help them keep going. Cause this, this is scary stuff. That's a lot of pressure. And this episode just talked about transforming healthcare. That is bedwetting scary. There's so many things that say you can't do that. Right. I'm here telling you punch those things in the face and, and stand up and say, these things cannot exist anymore because I believe healthcare can be better and I'm passionate about it. And here's the things I'm going to start doing different and the personal choices I'm going to make to actually show up to lead in a different way or to improve uh, and innovate to advance that, that dream I have in my head. And if you do that, people who are around you, they're going to see it and they're going to start doing it too. And that's why I said, we need to move from change management to movement making. And, you know, just having this conversation with you, I could see like, (laughs) you're going to start to gather your tools and you're going to equip yourself for that battle to lead that, lead that movement. And that's what makes me happy is to see people energized and empowered in that way. Cause I know through you, you're going to activate others and whoever you activate, they're going to activate someone else. And we'll never be able to capture the impact of that. But to know that that's potentially something that could happen as a result of your nice conversation, that that's why I'm out of my comfort zone. I don't, I don't like speaking publicly. I'm an introvert who has a master's degree in finance. I would rather work (laughs) with data sheets and trend and forecast what's going to happen in the market than talk about and pour my heart out and cry on a podcast for the things I hope to happen. I'm way out of my comfort zone here, um, but I'm loving it. Yeah. The the scary part, even, you know, again, this this is the problem to your point. You get a quality person and an improvement nerd, and this is the result because I was literally having a conversation with one of the executives that I'm coaching through my business time earlier this week. And we were talking about the concept of respect for people through the lean mindset. And as she was talking, she was like, oh, yeah, you know, respect for people. It means be nice to them. And I was like, yeah. And everything Mm -hmm. you just shared around, it's really how do you empower people to change, how to get better, you know, not scare the crap out of them. But you still have to push the envelope of all the work that we have to do as healthcare leaders and that, that's essentially what you described. It was my definition of respect for people. It's still empowering people and pushing them to be better, to get the resource, to provide them with resources as their leaders, as their coaches, and so forth. Um, 
Man, all right, so let, let's stop philosophizing, but I just wanna say it's scary that we share similar definitions all the way around, so I love it. Um, man, let's go ahead and jump into Q&A and get you off of the phone, my friend, because I feel like I'm gonna eat up your entire day if we keep going. Um, Tom, next question I have for you, sir, is something of a two-parter. I would love for you to tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best and then share with us how do you inspire others? So I kind of just shared, you know, like I'm way out of my comfort zone. I remember the the first time I spoke publicly, like I was sick to my stomach beforehand and I was definitely sweating and it showed in my, my dress shirt, <laughs> like, cause those things are pretty thin and it's pretty easy to see that that person's terrified. And, you know, I just get out of your comfort zone all the time. Even if it's the smallest step out of your comfort zone, you, that little step takes you closer to expanding your boundaries or what you're capable of doing. So that was, I was right out of school and I never imagined at that point that taking those small little steps to get out of my comfort zone would eventually add up to having a YouTube channel and creating training videos and hosting a podcast, being a guest on a podcast, doing marketing and, and, talking to people about hope and transformation and change, you know, like this, people listening to this episode, they may think like he's got it all put together and he had this figured out the whole time. I'll tell you, all I've did is trust my instincts. and had a lot of resolve and surrounded myself with really good people that believed in the same things I did and worked together to get it done. And I'd say, now that's been probably the biggest eye-opening experience is once I took the leap to go out on my own, I thought I was really going out on my own. And I just realized I was joining a bigger community of people um, that were just going about realizing their dreams and visions in a different way. And so if you, if you want to lead change and if you want to get out of your comfort zone, like just do it. It's, you're going to grow. It'll be terrifying and you'll probably get some gray hairs because of it, but uh, that that leads to wisdom, right? So I'd say that was probably for me, like just doing things and learning by doing and always having a goal of doing it better the next time um, is really what's got me to where I am. And I'm far from where I want to be. I, there's so many things I, I need to learn to, to you know, really lead this transformation I want to see become a reality. No, I, I respect that, you know, same feeling here when I jumped into my business more and more over the last two or three years, I was, I almost felt like I was late to the game There's so many other people that I started finding and connecting with. So, um, so yeah, again, your journey, um, I, I can definitely reflect in your journey so far. So I love it. Um, Tom, what is the best piece of career advice that you've received so far? Um, I had a mentor who early in my career told me I needed to prioritize significance over success. Um, we were having coffee and I was talking about the, the financial result, results I was getting in the scorecard and he could see the pride in the project success that I had created. And he said, your next growth is no longer about the success of the project, but the, uh, the way that you elevate the people on those projects. And that's significant. And he said, if you start hanging or, or prioritizing your career on significance versus success, you're going to have a happy life. And I think that was the best advice I'd ever got is to prioritize significance over success. Awesome. I love it. And uh, Tom, what do you consider to be three key attributes of being a successful quality person or improvement nerd? 
yeah. Uh, whatever nerds you out, don't hide it, embrace it. Um, you know, I, I was one of those people introverted and, um, I was more comfortable behind the scenes, but to be honest, if you've got an idea, if you don't stand up for it, no one else will. Um, so, you know, embrace what you're passionate about and really lean into that, that nerd. Um, so I think that's definitely one part to, I think, um, in one of the books I read, I saw a quote that every leader is a reader and every reader is a leader. Just dive into books and to be curious and read as much as you can about what other world-class organizations are doing or what other people role models you might look up to are doing. Um, and you know, carve out time to just soak those things up. So when I started traveling, I started reading a lot more and I they through those books, it just helped me become more well-rounded and it helped me realize I'm not alone, that there's people, <laughs> most of these authors, like where they are today, they didn't get there overnight. Like it took hard work and they grinded it out. So, you know, I love, I love reading and I encourage everyone to, to definitely make it a point to read more often. And then, you know, I, I would think, um, you know, do what f- makes you happy uh, and don't, and be una- unapologetic about it, even if it makes you kind of weird. Um, so like I, on my back screen right now, I'm looking at a picture of tunnel view at Yosemite and like, you know, what I'm working for now is to be able to spend more time in our national parks and to travel more with my boys and to do more hiking and stuff, because that's now something that I, um, is my goal. So I'd say like, you know, take that passion you have and somehow integrate it into um, a goal for you. You know, a lot of people are working to retire. And I'm, I'm whatever fruits of the labor that I'm after right now is so that I can get back out and hike um, and see El Capitan again and to see um, the, the valley and to stand on the floor at Yosemite again. You know, I've got other goals. Like I, I want to go to Seguro and Joshua Tree and Death Valley, things like that. So, you know, treat yourself, work hard, but play harder. And the, those things you're passionate about, the things you love, find a way to integrate them into your goals. So that as you're striving for them, like the rewards are worth pursuing. So I, kind of three things right there. I hope that those help people out in, you know, how they're going about their everyday lives. Those things I, I didn't look at when I was in the hustle bustle as a student and as a young employee and as a new leader, like I didn't focus on any of those three things. And now that's all I think about every day is, okay, when's the next time I get a couple of minutes to read? What's the next time I get to do something I've never done before and grow and scare myself a little bit, man, when's the next time I get to get out of Indiana and all this flatness and go see the mountains again? All right. So I, I love it. And I'll, again, just jump in on a very slow, um, you know, rapid fire question process, because I usually don't talk back, but play, uh, you know, work hard, play harder is literally my mantra. So I just, I just had to say it again, man, this, this is trouble. So <laughs> digital fist pump, dude. <laughs> um, Tom, next question I have for you. Could you please share a, uh, please share with our quality people, a professional society, and a professional conference that you think would be a value add? 
Um, I'm in love with the, um, it's IISE, so the Institute of Industrial Engineers, I think. Um, I went to their conference last February and March or so, and they were, um, you know, all looking at how they can transform healthcare. It was an amazing conference. So um, it's the Health Systems Process Improvement Conference. It's happening um, in late March of 2021 in Orlando. Um, and the, 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 the caliber of keynotes they bring in, the breakout sessions they host, the networking that exists, these people, it's a group of improvement nerds and they're like the upper echelon of nerds because they're engineers. Like half the times I didn't know what these people were saying. It was way over my head, but they were, I knew they were doing some really cool shit. And I was just excited to be rubbing elbows with people of that caliber, all bonding together to truly try to transform healthcare is one of the best professional groups and conferences I had been to. Oh, was, was that your first year? It was my first year. And I w- like okay. picked myself. I had no idea <laughs> why I hadn't gone before. And yeah, because I think you you would eat you'd either texted me or email me like right around that time. I think that was one of our last communications. Um, and I had, so I was there, but I had to leave early because I was teaching a class like on day two of the conference. So I hate that I missed the chance to meet you in person. Yeah, because your name kept coming up with people I was networking with at the event, and even I was meeting people who were guests on your show. Yeah, it's like he's he's got to be here. So yeah. I, pinged you and you're like no I just left yesterday I I just left (laughs) yeah so you know always a a huge shout out to SHS you know every year I've been a part of them Tom for I don't even know six seven eight plus years now and every year I go you know the first part is it's like you said it's improvement nerds and geeks about everything quality process improvement data Um, but even I go and I feel like I am their biggest fans, you know, when you can go and sit and meet, you know, the leaders who are there, the speakers who are there, um, you know, I had Mark Rabin on the show and I, I confess, I was like the total fanboy for him because his books were some of the first that I were introduced to when I came into healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, um, so again, I, I feel like I'm jumping all over your, your rapid fire here, but um you know, for for our audience, if you get a chance, always encourage folks to plug in with SHS. Um, I've had the chance now for the last two years to be a board member. And so um, more cool things coming. We hate, of course, that COVID is slowing us down, but it's it's a spot to be in. So so I appreciate the shout out, you know, from your experience, Tom, as well. Hands down, you know, find a way to get out there. If you want to be part of this transformation, if you want to be around people who are trying to get it done, that's the group. Um, I think I've never been to Quest, but I've been local to Baldridge conferences here local in the Midwest, mm-hmm. same caliber, you know, go to these conferences uh, that are about change and transformation and less about, you know, um, you know, prof- it, I think professional development is an important part of conferences, but participating in, in, a, in a vision and going big picture is so much more fun. Like I've been to conferences that were like, go here and get your continuing education requirements to be a PMP and a black belt and all this stuff. And like, yeah, relatively flat energy. Like I learned, but I wasn't inspired. When I went to the HSPI, Health Systems Process Improvement Conference, hashtag HSPI 2020, um, 
I was inspired. It was awesome. Wonderful. Love the, uh, love the plug and the shout out for my team there. Um, Tom, this is going to be, I call this the silver bullet question, man. But um, what's one piece of advice that you would give healthcare organizations to help them better manage their operations and improve outcomes? Oh, I would say definitely what we talked about today is, you know, um, be open-minded about bringing empathy into the way that you lead and into the way that you problem solve. And if you can do that, if you could practice vulnerability, if you can practice curiosity, if you can practice empathy, the people who look up to you as their leader, they will start to practice those things too. If you fold your arms back or around your chest and sit back and are resistant to these things, they will be too. If when people talk about empathy or uh, want to try using design thinking, please be the champion that stands up and say, I've got your back. Let's, let's try it. What's the worst that can happen? Right. Perfect. And last one, Tom, this is officially our closer. And again, to our audience, sorry for such a long episode, but it's easy to see why we took it this far. Um, but Tom, let's say that we're sitting here a year from now celebrating what a great year has been for you and your team um, over, you know, within the Green Dot group. Um, take a second to think about it, but what exactly did we achieve this year? And most importantly, how are we celebrating? So I would love to instill these skills in organizations, right? Like I, yeah, in, I'm sure you have the same approach in consulting, right? It's like, you don't want an organization to forever be dependent on you to act as a catalyst to get that organization over the hump. I want to partner with organizations to teach them how to use design in, uh, in a complementary way to what they're already doing. I'm not saying control all delete and every tool you've had to date, throw it out the window. No, keep doing those things. Just find a way to bring design into the picture. And and invest in learning it and start to host design sprints, create personas of your key customers, create personas of your caregivers and your employees, and try to look at your problems through their eyes. So if I can do work like that in this next year and transfer those skills to organizations, oh man, I, I would definitely achieved more than I thought was possible. And the, if I were to do that, the way I'd be celebrating was if COVID-19 works with us and this travel restriction gets lifted, I'm going to be, when, when I, I'm going to HSPI, I'm going to be there in March. And if everything works out just fine, I'm going to go to the Everglades and the Dry Tortugas because those are national parks that are on my list and I got to see them. So if we could pull this off, I'm going to be trapped. That's how I want to celebrate is go experience nature. So th that's my plan. All right. Well, I can easily say, um, as you know, being from South Florida originally, Tom, those would be two amazing places to go check out. So, um, you know, fingers crossed we can get there in the next several months. But um, I love the focus that you have for, you know, the, the future vision, man. So I'm really hopeful everything comes together for you, your team and your business that you're continuing to grow. Um, Tom, I really, really appreciate just, again, the chance to officially connect with you. This is like one of those moments where I know I can pick some really good guests. And, you know, even from a year ago to today, this was well worth the wait for me personally. Um, Tom, I would love to end our conversation today with you just sharing the best way for folks to connect with you or follow you on social media. Please do share, you know, websites to your organization, to your podcast even. 
um, and, and then we'll officially sign off. Yeah. So in regards to social media, I don't know how to use Instagram. So you could follow me on there, but don't expect to be wowed. I feel like I've figured out LinkedIn and that I'm pretty, pretty well put together on that platform. Uh, so check, check me out there. My, um, uh, my, I guess the moniker or my alias or vanity plate is improvement nerd on there. So check me out on LinkedIn and then check out the website, uh, the green.group.com. And then the podcast is on improvementnerds.com. So I'd love to have you join my community and I look forward to nerding out with you. All right, perfect. And uh, we'll get those and kind of post them in the show notes for you as well. Uh, Tom, thank you so much again. And to our quality people everywhere, thank you all for listening and making us a part of your day. This is Jarvis and Tom, and we are officially signing off. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share additional resources, access to our QI community, and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.